Jacobin Show. I'm your host, Jen Pan. You might have noticed that we are not live today. We are actually switching over to pre-recording The Jacobin Show so we can start bringing you a slightly more polished show, uh, which also means that Kale gets to show off his video editing a little more. On that note, I am excited for you guys to see my segment today. Uh, It's on the topic of so-called economic anxiety uh, and how that anxiety influences elections and people's voting behavior. Like I said, uh, hopefully this week it's, it's a little snappier and different than usual, so please keep watching. Um, All that said, we are still going to air the show every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern. So as always, thanks very much for watching. Please come back next week. Uh, Of course, please subscribe to our channel so you know when we post new videos. So on today's show, as I mentioned, I have some comments about why the media sort of turned uh, the idea of economic anxiety into a joke after the 2016 election. I'm going to talk a little bit about why I think that's wrong and how we should really be thinking about economic anxiety. I also have a great interview with Ben Fong and Christy Offenbacher. They wrote a new piece for the recent issue of Catalyst called Occupy in Retrospect. It's not actually a retrospective of Occupy proper. Uh, It's more of a response to this sort of wave of Occupy retrospectives that came out last year. Ben and Christy argue that these retrospectives really really get the origin story wrong uh, insofar as these retrospectives seem to sort of uniformly claim that Occupy led to the two Bernie Sanders campaigns. And I think they have a really interesting take on um, how the relationship in a weird way kind of goes the opposite way. And um, the piece is really good. We're linking it down below. And I'm really excited for that interview. Uh, But first, I am actually talking to none other than Kale Brooks about the perennially confusing topic of the middle class. So let's get to it. So, Kale, the reason why I wanted to talk to you about the middle class today is because, you know, the middle class is this notoriously fuzzy term, right? Uh, So politicians in the U.S., I think, have uh, forever used the term middle class in what I think is a deliberately obfuscating way where, you know, just by saying middle class, they kind of get to act like they're speaking to the majority of the American public uh, or advocating on behalf of the majority when usually they're actually not representing the majority at all. But I think that the relationship kind of goes both ways in that to this day, I really feel like a lot of Americans, like ranging from people who are just shy of the poverty line to people who make six figures, probably think of themselves as middle class. So it still continues to be this sort of vague and baggy term. Yeah, who doesn't and want to be in the middle? Just... Who doesn't want to be in the middle? We all like being in the middle. Um, and I want to say specifically, you know, on the left, and of course on this show, um, we also talk about the middle class a lot. And we sometimes use the terms middle class and professional managerial class sort of interchangeably. I know that you're not the hugest fan of the latter. I like it. Uh, maybe we can talk about that later. But the point is that I don't think we always explicitly spell out what we mean. Um, but in general, I think when we talk about the middle class, we're sort of referring to what Barbara and John Ehrenreich kind of 
uh, famously identified as this space sort of between labor and capital. Like, what is this group of people who aren't really the traditional working class, but are also definitely not ruling class, right? So I, I guess just to start, um, as I sort of alluded to, there are a lot of different definitions and theories of the middle class. And since you've been sort of immersed in this subject matter, um, maybe give us a few examples of how historians and theorists have sort of thought about the middle class in the past. And then, like, talk about what you find kind of the most convincing uh, definition or theory for of the middle class for today. Yeah. Um, well, like you said, I think, like, the way it's typically deployed, it's kind of an all-encompassing term of, of, like, you know, the median, the general, you know, where most people fit. And, and that's where there's this kind of equation of working people in the middle class uh, that you know, there once was an American middle class and now there's not, or it's been in decline or it's been carved out or hollowed out. And, uh, and so politicians come around and say, we're going to rebuild the middle class. Um, and I think what they, when they do that, like you're saying, it's obfuscating because it's basically just kind of, uh, aligning the term middle class with like a certain, uh, standard of living, a certain amount of income, a certain kind of social status. And these are all very vague. They're not really like, they're they're kind of descriptive but not even that helpful so mm -hmm. but it, i think like to answer your question i mean there, it's been an ongoing thing within people you know social theory broadly but also just people like social progressives people who want to advance you know a better world for everyone um of trying to understand well who are these people that uh fit in that middle category between like you're saying workers and the employers capitalists mm -hmm. um and so this goes back to Marx as, a, you know, he like famously didn't really describe classes in any like concrete definitional way, um, but like is constantly employing uh, terms, you know, and, and analysis that use class and class structure and class struggle and class formation and class consciousness and all these things. Um, there's been a number of other traditions that have largely sprung up to counter the Marxian tradition. Um, but it became increasingly important uh, post-war uh, in the in the developed world to figure out who are these middle class people and what are their political interests. Uh, and so there's been a number of attempts to say, well, you know, there is no middle class. Um, there are just workers. There are those people who every single day have to show up to work um, and who have to sell their ability to work in exchange for a wage. And then there are those people who appropriate what they produce. So the, the people, the capitalists, the employers, the bosses who make a living off of taking your the products of your effort and selling them and then creating a profit and using that to then make more profit and exploit you more and et cetera, et cetera. But this, I think, proved politically unstable that it was like there's political issues with that. And so there's other people who tried to say, well, no, actually, it's a new class. There's something that's very new historically that has emerged. Um, and there's a lot of different people, especially kind of in the new left. And the point is, is that uh, they said, you know, this is a class with its own um, kind of uh, class interests that are distinct from these other classes. And so it kind of radically broke up this old kind of bipolar, or not bipolar, this, um, this, I guess, yeah, bipolar, yeah, this, like, bipolar distinction of, like, uh, you know, workers and capitalists as, like, the two polarities at which, like, capitalist society uh, revolves around. Um, you mentioned the Ehrenreichs. I think, like, there's a lot that is really useful and, and um, like, that we, I think, I think they touched on a lot of real aspects of, of the middle class. Um, 
And uh, so, you know, I think the PMC, I, I push back slightly. I think I like the PMC. I think like there's like political use to that term. And like that's important because this, you know, we'll get to this, but I think a lot of this has to do with like, you know, what politics is. Um, but I, I tend to, you know, agree probably most with uh, the theorist Eric Olin Wright and kind of his uh, intervention of saying, well, it's not either or it's not uh, there are no there is no middle class or um, or it's an entirely new class. It's actually that it's a contradictory location between these two poles. Again, if you think mm-hmm. of like two poles of gravity um, where there's uh, material interest, everyone has material interests because we're material, but we are being pulled in different directions uh, if you're in the middle class. And so, right. you know, like the kind of small business owners, the, you know, owner operators, people who like are self-employed, those people exist. And you could say they're between labor and capital, but that's not typically who we mean by the middle class. That's kind of, that's what traditionally maybe is considered like the petty bourgeoisie, right. um, some older cane language that we should probably drop. But really the middle class are like, those people who are wage laborers, who do get paid a wage, who are employed by bosses and capitalists, but aren't really the same as other workers. And so the two kind of axes that are the most important are aspects of authority of, you know, people who uh, may be employed and may be exploited and, you know, but they also supervise or manage other people. And so... Right. That's this kind of managerial aspect that um, the Ehrenreichs are picking up on. Uh, and the, the fact is that, like, when you end up managing people, um, you're effectively being delegated, you know, aspects of uh, what capitalists do, um, and you get rewarded for it. You get, uh, you know, higher wages, you get a career ladder, you get more goodies and rewards and time off, and maybe you get summers off or whatever. You get certain things that, um, rewards you for carrying out what the boss is not uh, either able to do or would rather not do, or um, he can't be omnipotent everywhere all at once. So he employs managers. Right. You're not technically a capitalist, but you're sort of symbolically operating on the side of capital or on behalf of capital. Yeah, but I think it's more, I mean, there is a symbolic aspect, but I really think it's like, it is material in the sense that like, there are rewards. You are actually carrying out the you know the class interests right. of that other of that other polarity against the capitalist interests and you reap some workers. benefits and actually i want to quickly shout out uh barbara and john aaron reich uh lots of you guys are probably familiar they did write an update to their original mm-hmm. sort of treatise on the professional managerial class and i just want to shout it out because it's a really great essay it's called death of a yuppie dream and they wrote that after the recession and they point out a lot of what you're talking about how you know um They basically argue that at this point, the professional managerial class is basically fracturing, right? Mm -hmm. So you have a lot of people who are college educated, who, you know, would are white collar workers and would have been very comfortable, you know, sort of prior to neoliberalism, who are now experiencing a lot of downward mobility. Mm -hmm. But you also have the rise of a new class of basically super managers who are like high powered CEOs. And, you know, as you were saying, just other operators or other people who 
you know, still collect a salary, but Mm -hmm. like are so grossly overcompensated and um, are are operating on behalf of capital. And so their argument is basically that this this professional managerial class or this middle class, as you were saying, is not just only pulled in these two different directions at any given time, but is actually fracturing because of Mm. that. So I think that's pretty interesting as well. Right. And just to just to finish kind of the topography of this, um, like you're saying, there are like those managers who like the CEOs uh, who are like at the top of the the corporate structures that um, do really actually not just like have authority over others, but actually have like control, uh, effective control over like the all the actual productive resources, the actual assets that like define, right. you know, the property relations of this of capitalism, they actually own the means of production. Um, we really need a better term for that. But so like you could probably say the CEOs are effectively uh, capitalists. Right. Like there's right. really no distinction between them and, you know, someone who like properly actually, you know, right. owns, you know. And actually CEOs usually own some share of the company. Yeah. 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 So they so they really do have ownership, um, yeah. even though they are technically managers. Um, But then, like you're saying, then there's, um, you know, so that's the one half, the kind of authority side of of the middle class. um, And like, and that's the managers, the managerial side. Then there's the like you're saying, there's like professionals, there's people who have certain talents and skills that uh, enable them to not be subjected to the worst of capitalist, like labor market competition that, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if you have a degree, then you get access to certain jobs other people don't have access to. Um, and, or if you have certain talents, certain skills, you know, the degree might you know represent those things. Hope, you know, that's the kind of the, the hope that people have when they go to college is that like, they actually, you know, pick up those things and sometimes they do. And sometimes it's, they don't, it's bullshit. But, um, but the point is that like, it's the fact that you, for whatever reason, real or not actually have real, uh, different chances when you're competing for jobs, um, that you actually have something that makes you not as replaceable in the eyes of the boss. Um, and that's ultimately what gives you greater leverage against the boss when you're negotiating. Right. And so this is actually, a lot of it goes back to when we had our conversation with Vivek Chibber about um, his notion of kind of individual versus collective strategies to advance your interests, mm-hmm. that uh, for most workers, they end up choosing individual strategies because it's easier, uh, you know, than taking on the risk of like organizing with others, even though organizing with others most likely is going to bring them, uh, you know, a greater share of the pie. They're going to like... If it works, yeah. which it usually doesn't. Right. For most working people, you know, it's like they're not getting, you know... Uh, their actual by pursuing the individual strategy only goes so far. Whereas like for a professional, you actually probably can, you know, negotiate with your boss and actually get more in return. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Because you say, look, if you don't give me what I want, if you don't give me this higher salary or this, you know, these certain uh, special treats and, you know, like the, (laughs) the, like, you know, uh, what special treats? Yeah. (laughs) Then I'm going to work for your competitor. I can like, I can undermine your firm by mm-hmm. working for them because I have something that you both want. Uh, mm-hmm. So like that is a real thing that actually distinguishes these workers as not just like any typical working class person in capitalism. Right, right. Okay, so now I want to ask you, 
Since we're talking about kind of these different strains or these different like competing or conflicting interests within the sort of large category of the middle class, something that we sort of allude to a lot on this show, and I know lots of other people on the left do as well, is sometimes we talk about the middle class or especially the PMC as though it's like a reactionary force, Mm. right? Like the PMC and like PMC interests are like usually standing in the way of something that we we want to do that we think would be a pro sort of working class policy. I think that that I think that we have lots of evidence that that's true. That's what we talk about on the show all the time. Um, but the Aaron Reichs, Catherine Liu and other people have also talked about how the professional managerial class or I guess we're let's call it the middle class for now, since that's the term that you like. Uh, lots of people have argued that the middle class can also be a force for good. And part of the reason is because you know, although we have talked about how there are some of these sort of cleavages or conflicting class interests, subclass interests, at the end of the day, lots of people, even if you have a college degree, even if you, um, you know, have a special skill that makes you a little bit less indispensable or a little bit more indispensable to your boss, you still have to work for a living or else you are going to die. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, the question, I guess, is like, how has the middle class historically been a reactionary force and not? I think, I mean, it's part of this is like colored by the fact that we're living in a moment with maybe one of the most reactionary middle classes of of all time. So like that really doesn't help us. Um, Although I think like insofar as like we have to respond to immediate political circumstances, it's it's like a very legitimate thing. To it's almost like the the more interesting question is can the middle class ever actually be. Uh, you know, a part of a working class coalition for mm-hmm. the betterment of like humanity and <laughs> right. I sorry, I just have to interject something really quickly because I agree with you broadly, but I also want to point out that when you look at something like the two Bernie Sanders campaigns, mm-hmm. um, although we know from you know donations and polling and whatnot that. Uh, a huge base of his support came from what we call the traditional working class. So, you know, when you look at the occupations of people who were sending him individual donations and stuff, it was like overwhelmingly, you know, uh, like I said, people who would fit into what we traditionally called the working class. But his most sort of active and committed base, the people who were canvassing, the people who came back from 2016 to 2020 and were like, organizing carpools to go from state to state who were like riding super hard for Bernie Mm. were people with college degrees who are probably downwardly mobile, right? Like people like, I'll just go ahead and say myself who, you know, like I graduated into the great recession. Uh, I, I definitely feel like I could benefit from every single Mm -hmm. one of Bernie Sanders's policies, right? So I I think that you're right that we probably are living in a time period of an extremely reactionary middle class. But again, just to go back to Barbara and John Ehrenreich, it does also seem to me like there is there is a segment, and I don't know how big it is, but there is a segment of you know would be PMCs that are like this sucks, and uh, I like Bernie. Yeah, well, I think that's where um, to go back to Eric Olin Wright. I I would take his <laughs> concept of uh, kind of temporality that plays mm-hmm. into this. So, like you just said, like what's unique about maybe the people that are for Bernie is their downward mobility. That like they understand, even though they might be in um, you know a slightly better position uh, when they're competing for jobs because they have a degree, um, they. Uh, 
and I'm trying to explain these concepts rather than just take them as a given, right? So it's right. Like, that's why they're middle class. Um, they're downwardly mobile because they don't really see, you know, job prospects or they don't or like the job prospects that are available are increasingly um, like the actual like what you get for having those credentials yes. are in decline. Whereas like if you think like you, you know, um, if you are doing things that are in the interests of, you know, capitalism broadly or capitalists or of the firm of the boss, um, that that means you're going to have a, an, you know, uh, an increasing living or like a higher living standard over time that um, your, you know, your welfare, what you get um, from your, you know, from working is actually going to, you know, greatly increase, then like, you're probably going to actually end up tying yourself to the firm or to the to the capitalist more. And so that's where um, you've seen this like large kind of cleavage emerge among middle class people of more and more kind of skilled and credentialed people realizing like actually shit the economy overall is not working for me that like I really don't have the prospects I thought I was Mm -hmm. um so I do think the political thing that we have to provide for middle class people insofar as we think that they have to be a part of our coalition which I happen to think they probably a good chunk of middle class people should be um because like you're saying a lot of them would benefit and um you know we need a lot of these people in society and we need to like build a society that like, uh, you know, helps the vast majority. Um, but there's probably going to have to be, you know, uh, a political project that enhances growth and, um, you know, economic prosperity for those people. Um, like that it's primarily driven by working class people's interests, but it has to, uh, you know, they have to be beneficiaries of that as well. Um, I think that's where, like, when you've seen successful, like, social democratic projects, like, in Europe um, in the 20th century, like, when you did have middle-class people joining uh, working people in those fights, um, it was it was around those universal programs that they stood to benefit greatly from, as opposed to, like, some means-tested programs or something that we're more used to in the U.S. Um, and that by actually fighting for those programs and obtaining those programs, what actually ended up doing was somewhat radically changed the class locations. It kind of sh- shook up the mm-hmm. map of where people fall in their, um, you know, in these class fights uh, that you ended up having managers uh, standing, you know, side by side with workers, you know, against bosses in certain fights, not in every situation, but like it opens up those possibilities. Um yeah, I mean, I think, like, middle-class people are, are winnable, but, um, you know, at the same time, like, we have to, like, take very seriously the fact that, like, people's material interests um, are going to drive most of their, like, their political decisions in the aggregate, at you know, at a general mm-hmm. level. And so, you know... But I guess what I'm of- saying, I guess what I'm saying is that it seems to me, like, for so much of the middle-class... Uh, especially sort of now under neoliberalism, where we've seen that, you know, any economic growth that we've had has gone primarily to like a very, very tiny number of people at the top. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that the material interests of a large part of the of the middle class are the same as Mm. the material interests of the working class. I mean, obviously, there are sort of different components. Um, Again, you know, it is very different to have a college degree and to not have a college degree um, Mm -hmm. in today's economy. But uh, but when you but when you talk about the middle class's material interests, like maybe say a little bit more about specifically what you see those as being. Um, Well, I mean, I think like there's certain 
there's so like fundamentally we all have like certain human interests of like we have certain human like things that we need to be that need to be satisfied we need like a certain amount of um you know calories a certain amount of sleep we need like a place that we we live that like we need a certain amount of security in our lives you know we're not worried about you know where our next meal is coming from um and we can't actually spend our time as social creatures like you know having building relationships and enjoying culture and all these things like um and then the the material interests are just coming out of well how do you actually obtain those things given the social structure given Mm -hmm. your place in it and so I think for middle class people, like their material interests, um, you know, I think like the the really there's no mystery in what you're saying. It's just the fact that like people today, uh, middle class people with people with degrees are finding it increasingly difficult to get by just like going it the way of, you know, impressing the boss and, you know, moving up the, the corporate firm or whatever right. that uh, it makes more int- it makes more sense to more of these people to fight for a political project that is part of the left of, of universal programs. Yes. So I think the, the answer is really that like, yes, they're like a lot of them are kind of very immediately in our, in our, in our, on our side at the same time, those sides can shift based on, mm-hmm. you know, well, who's actually, who's making the best offer to like advance right. your interests. Right. Really. All right. So let's wrap up. Um, I think my last question for you is just basically like, We've been talking a lot about, you know, how to define the middle class and what kinds of subcategories exist within the middle class. Mm-hmm. And I guess the final question is just like, how how important exactly are these taxonomies at the end mm-hmm. of the day? Right. Because like I obviously uh, I obviously much like you am sort of very interested in like the different cleavages and the different patterns among what we might call the middle class. But if we say middle class and we mean something very mm. like hyper specific and the rest of the the rest of America says middle class and they just mean the same old thing of like basically everybody in America, like is it actually useful to talk about the middle class like is this taxonomy useful? Uh, why exactly is it useful, I guess, to delineate within these class categories? And I just like, just as one last note, like I, I often think about that like line from The Simpsons or whatever that that comes up a few times where they refer to themselves as upper lower middle yeah. class. And, you know, that's kind of like a spoof of like how both vague and specific these categories can be. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think the only reason to do class analysis is because you actually want to change the world. It's because you actually want social progress. Um, like there's only really a left case for, for class analysis in my mind. Right. Um, because otherwise this is a complete waste of time and you should get on and make some money or something. Like if, if like, if you're not interested in like a left political project, you don't want universal programs. You don't want, you know, a society that like, prioritizes people's needs over profit then there's no point in trying to figure this stuff out it's entirely because there are political fights where you need to know whose side are you on and so you try to figure out the middle class because you want to know um you know to what extent from the get-go are they on your side or, or are they against you um and i think what we know is that it's not predetermined like i've been saying and i think like that's where you enter into political um organizing and political struggle of trying to win people over to your side so like the same thing is like why you know we know based on class analysis why 
the vast majority of employers and capitalists are not going to be on our side when we fight for universal programs and a redistribution of wealth and power because they're the ones who the current system privileges and they are the benefactors of of the structures and of the institutions. Um, and so we are directly challenging them. So it doesn't make sense to try to bring them over to our side. We want to see among people who are uh, who are not the benefactors or are getting, you know, uh, an uneven deal, can we actually bring them over to our political coalition? So otherwise, like, if you, yeah, all this kind of like, are you in the upper middle, lower middle, whatever, I think it's just, it's descriptive. And like, if you, if it makes sense to you in some descriptive way, sure, why not? But like, really, the only thing that matters to politics is, are the political fights. Uh, that That's why you use class analysis. It's It's strategic. All right. Well, like I mentioned, Kale has been quite obviously reading, writing, and thinking a lot about this. I'll just go ahead and tease that he may he may be writing or he may be publishing a piece on it at some point. Uh, there may be videos on it for this very channel, so stay tuned. Uh, young Kale, thank you for the interview and good to see you. Good to see you, Jen. All right. And now a word from our sponsor, Verso Books. Join the Verso Book Club and get every new ebook that Verso publishes every month, as well as one to three books in the mail. All Verso Book Club members also get 50% off everything on the website. The Comrade tier is only $20 a month for your first three months, and if you join in March, you'll get these books. Feminism or Death, How the Women's Movement Can Save the Planet by Francois Deobon, a new edition of a classic work of French feminist theory. Mistaken Identity, Race and Class in the Age of Trump by Assad Haider, a challenge to the way we understand the politics of race and the history of anti-racist struggle. The Politics of Immunity, Security and the Policing of Bodies by Mark Neocleus, an intellectual history that exposes the politics underpinning the way immunity is imagined. And The Benjamin Files by Frederick Jameson, the paperback edition of this comprehensive exploration of all of Benjamin's major works. Become a member today at versobooks.com. Over the last few years, the media has routinely dismissed the idea that economic anxiety explained any part of the rise of Donald Trump and other right-wing populists. But it turns out economic anxiety might account for more than people think. Given the way things are currently going for Joe Biden and the Democrats in general, it's not impossible that in 2024 we could find ourselves revisiting the question, why did people vote for Donald Trump? You might recall that after the 2016 election, when people tried to take a serious look at the factors that led to Trump's upset win, the mainstream media collectively lost its mind over the suggestion that any person who voted for Trump might have been motivated by anything other than raging white supremacy. For instance, Senator Bernie Sanders caught flack for saying things like this. The reason he is doing so well is there is a lot of angst in this country. There's a lot of pain in this country, a lot of hurt in this country. You got millions of people who are working longer hours for low wages. You got 46 million people living in poverty. People are seeing their jobs go to China. They're seeing their jobs go to Mexico. And what he is saying, I understand your problems. I will tell you that I think there needs to be a profound change in the way the Democratic Party does business. It is not good enough to have a liberal elite. I come from the white working class, and I am deeply humiliated that the Democratic Party cannot talk to the people from where I came from. Some people think that the people who voted for Trump are racists and sexists and homophobes and just 
deplorable folks. I don't agree. I don't agree, because I've been there. Now, let me tell you something else that some of you may not agree with. And that is, it wasn't that Donald Trump won the election, it was that the Democratic Party lost the election. In response, journalist Ta-Nehisi Coates excoriated Sanders' statements as, quote, a sweeping dismissal of the concerns of those who don't share kinship with white men. And the idea that economic anxiety was a bogus explanation meant only to excuse the seething racism of Trump voters quickly became the overwhelming consensus among the liberal commentariat. This is not, in fact, about economic anxiety. There are plenty of problems with the economy, but that's not what's behind What Trump. is it about then? What well, is behind race. it? I mean, ultimately, it's about race. I mean, you cannot understand anything that's happening in, in this election in U.S. politics without seeing it as a, um, a certain, unfortunately, a fairly large fraction of Americans who don't like the fact that we're becoming a multiracial, multicultural country. Because they think that eats into their economic opportunity? No, it's, it's in, in, it eats into their identity. It's really not about economics. You know, all the economic anxiety among people I talk to, economic anxiety has become a, a kind of a joke slogan. Think piece after think piece insisted, top Democrats are wrong. Trump supporters were more motivated by racism than economic issues. And it was cultural anxiety that drove white working class voters to Trump. And white fear elected Trump. One especially popular style of commentary in this vein was science proves it was racism and not economic anxiety that led people to vote for Trump. Journalist Mehdi Hassan, now a host over at MSNBC, was especially committed to this beat. So who are the people who put Donald Trump in the White House? Is this a revolt of the dispossessed, of the left behind, of globalization's losers? Is it a backlash against free trade? Some of the top voices on the US left seem to think so. But what if the economy isn't the main driver? What if it's racism and racial resentment that helped put Trump in the Oval Office? What if it's the white lash? Build that wall! Build that wall! USA! USA! Get out! That's economic anxiety. In a 2018 column for The Intercept, Hassan made it clear just how fed up he was by talk of economic anxiety. After running through a handful of studies on the racial resentments expressed by Trump voters, he wrote, Do I really need to continue? Do I need to cite more studies, more surveys? How can this still be a matter for debate? Well, the reason this is still a matter of debate is because we, in fact, have plenty of other rigorous studies and surveys that indicate that, yes, economic anxiety, so to speak, did have something to do with the Democrats losing in 2016. As you can imagine, the media didn't cover these studies in nearly as much detail, so let's run through a few. First of all, it's important to note that literally none of the researchers discussing the role that economic anxiety played in the rise of Trump have dismissed the idea that racial and cultural resentments are connected to this anxiety. The argument, rather, is that when economic conditions deteriorate and thrust people into long-term hardship, the opportunities for demagogues like Trump to swoop in and stoke racial resentment are that much greater. For instance, a few years ago, sociologist Andrew Cherlin undertook an in-depth study of Dundalk, Maryland, a former Democratic-leaning steel town that lost thousands of blue-collar union jobs over the course of several decades and voted overwhelmingly for Trump in 2016. 
In 1960, 70% of Dundalk residents over the age of 25 hadn't even completed high school. Yet the median household income in the town at this time was still well over the national average thanks to robust employment at nearby manufacturing plants like General Motors, Western Electric, and most crucially, the Bethlehem Steel Company. 81% of the housing units in Dundalk in 1960 were owner-occupied, which is to say that thanks to union wages, most workers in this town were able to buy homes and achieve a middle-class standard of living. However, in the 1970s, a series of bad trade policies and an economic recession devastated the steel industry and the manufacturing jobs that supported most of the families in Dundalk began to vanish. When the Bethlehem steel plant near Dundalk finally closed in 2012, only 8% of the town's labor force was employed in manufacturing. The town's population had shrunk and opioid addiction was rampant. According to one social worker, the jobs that most residents now held were at places like the grocery store or the part-time position at the health clinic. As she put it, they are not livable jobs with livable pay. The hours are inconsistent. What Andrew Turlin found through extensive interviews with residents of this once thriving steel town was that Trump had been able to tap into their longstanding distress over decades of falling wages and the permanent disappearance of a type of work that gave them a sense of pride and dignity. For instance, one former steelworker told Churlin that he had gone to Washington with other steelworkers in the early 2000s to lobby for tariffs on imported steel, but neither Democrats nor Republicans had been willing to listen. In fact, it wasn't until 2016 that a high-profile candidate would talk about steel tariffs on a national platform, and that person, of course, was Trump. Turlin writes that the steelworker he spoke to took off his glasses and fought back tears as he related how great it felt many years later to listen to the ceremony at which Trump signed the order establishing tariffs on imported steel. He acknowledged that the tariffs may not be effective or even good policy in the long run, but Trump had done something. Despite having worked for Democratic candidates in the past, he's ready to campaign for Trump's re-election. Now, Turlin also notes that plenty of white Dundalk residents did express their economic woes in racial terms, complaining, for instance, about the increase in Section 8 housing, code, of course, for low-income Black families, or increased immigration at the same time they lamented the lack of good jobs in the area. That tracks with a different study where two social psychologists looked at census data and unemployment rates to figure out whether increased racial diversity in a given neighborhood caused white people to vote for Trump. What they found was that white residents felt threatened by increased racial diversity only in areas where there were high rates of unemployment. In other words, it wasn't simply more diversity in and of itself that led to feelings of resentment among whites during the 2016 election. Rather, economic conditions also played an important role in determining whether whites perceived more threat and tapped into feelings of racial grievance. As Churlin put it, Trump's masterstroke was to recognize the desperation of the white working class over the deteriorating industrial economy and to encourage their tendency to racialize that desperation. Neither economics nor identity politics can be said to be the more important factor. Together, they were tinder for the bonfire that resulted, and Trump was the match. The idea that deindustrialization and long-term manufacturing job losses laid the ground for Trump and other Republicans to pick up voters who felt abandoned by Democrats has been further confirmed by a 2021 study that looked at voting patterns in former factory towns across 10 states in the industrial heartland, also known as the Blue Wall that Hillary Clinton lost in 2016. 
In the study, Democratic strategist Richard Martin found that, much like the residents of Dundalk, Maryland, voters in former manufacturing counties that had been devastated by deindustrialization and free trade deals like NAFTA steadily migrated from the Democratic Party to the Republicans. Within the states Martin looked at, Barack Obama handily won mid-sized manufacturing counties in 2008 and won them again by more than 100,000 votes in 2012. In 2016, Hillary Clinton lost the exact same counties by over 800,000 votes. There's again evidence that Trump's populist rhetoric on trade resonated with voters in these areas. As Martin points out, in Donald Trump's first debate with Hillary Clinton, he mentioned unfair trade deals nine times, NAFTA eight times, and kept reminding people that it was Hillary's husband who signed it. In 2016, even CNN couldn't help but notice that Trump's speeches on trade sounded an awful lot like the socialist candidates. Since 2001, we have lost almost 60,000 factories in America. Jobs, jobs, jobs. And the major reason for that is a disastrous trade policy. We have trade agreements that truly are so one-sided that they are now harming and really hurting our workers. So the point here is not that racism, opposition to immigration, or cultural anxieties played no part in Trump's electoral victory. The point is that if we're serious about preventing a re-election of Trump or the rise of another right-wing demagogue who simply knows how to talk a good game on trade, it's important to understand exactly how so-called economic anxiety and the Democrats' abandonment of pro-worker economic policies did influence people's decisions to vote for Trump, both directly and indirectly. We also have to understand why racial resentment turns into such an effective lever for politicians like Trump if we're to have any hope of quashing it. As Andrew Cherlin put it, racism is a corrosive part of American culture and politics. Nevertheless, those who try to distinguish between the explanatory power of stagnant wages and a declining industrial base on the one hand, and anxieties about the ascent of minority groups on the other, miss the point. These are not two different factors, but two sides of the same coin. Finally, some might ask, why should we care about what's going on with the people in these former manufacturing towns? Why not just let them become Republicans and try to pick up votes from more enlightened parts of the country? The problem, simply put, is that under our current electoral system, these are the places that still make or break national elections. According to Richard Martin, these largely working-class, former manufacturing counties contain 40% of all voters. Even though Democrats have come to dominate cities and suburbs, their losses in these manufacturing counties overwhelmed the party's gains in urban areas by over 2 million votes in 2016. But of course, it's more beneficial for MSNBC pundits and other commentators to advance a narrative that Trump voters were and are nothing more than irredeemable racists. After all, that's the kind of sanctimonious talk show discussion that's designed to soothe the egos of liberals who hate the working class and are looking for any excuse to write them off. But as 2016 should make clear, at the end of the day, willfully ignoring one major cause of the Democrats' ongoing loss of working class support is not only a moral shortcoming, it's also a disastrous political strategy. So we're now going to our interview with Ben Fong and Christy Offenbacher. Ben Fong teaches at Arizona State University. Christy is a psychoanalyst based in New York City. 
They're also both healthcare organizers and editors at Damage Magazine. You guys obviously have a great article out in the new Catalyst called Occupy in Retrospect. We're obviously going to link that down below. So last year was the 10th anniversary of Occupy Wall Street. And I want to make clear, your article isn't really about Occupy, right? It's more of a response to all of these sort of glowing retrospectives that came out last year. Um, and you guys have you guys are arguing that these retrospectives, for the most part, advance an incorrect origin story, um, particularly uh, around the relationship between Occupy and the two Bernie Sanders campaigns that came after it. So just to kind of dive in, um, Ben, maybe if you want to start with, like, what is the commonly understood Occupy origin story that you guys are sort of arguing against? And then maybe, Christy, if you can pick up where it goes wrong and um, how this origin myth took root. Sure. Um, I think anyone who reads left publications uh, saw the sort of um, flurry of Occupy retrospectives uh, around like October 2021, which was the 10 year anniversary. And um, most of those articles uh, recognize certain shortcomings in the movement uh, and they sort of reject uh, what they see now as an immature demandless horizontalism that was um, that was a real hindrance uh, to, the, to the sort of growth and success of Occupy. Um, but they nonetheless see it as the origin, a really important um, political origin for a lot of things that came after um, Black Lives Matter, the, the Bernie Sanders campaigns, um, and the rejuvenation of the Democratic Socialists of America. And in all those ways, uh, it sort of sees Occupy as the kind of rebirth of left politics and the origin of all of these things that came afterwards. Um, so that's the, the myth. And I think it's fairly common, uh, again, in sort of most left publications. And I'll let Christy explain why we think it's a myth. Right. So I think the point for us is that while Occupy preceded these other developments like BLM, Bernie or DSA, it didn't cause them. Uh, the cause is, I think, much more a combination of ongoing political conditions, particularly the financial crash of 2008. Mm -hmm. um, and then, but also like 30 years of unrelenting, unrelenting uh, neoliberalism before then. Um, and Occupy as was, as we say in the article, uh, the last instance of kind of the same old, same old response of the left to these 30 years of neoliberal rule, um, which were mostly ineffectual um, and involved no programmatic response um, that's being pursued in an organized strategic way. Um, so I think we see it as important to see that uh, Occupy was not the beginning, but really the end for a few reasons, um, which is kind of part of, I think, Jen's question as to why the myth. Uh, um, our answer, I think, is first that um, there were real tensions um, that persist there are real tensions that persist in the left today um, that can be traced back to how people came to be involved in left politics. And the, the myth sort of functions to authorize people who came from that Occupy background. Um, it authorizes them to assume positions of authority within left spaces today um, that they haven't maybe, in fact, earned um, because they haven't been doing, uh, you know, the type of strategic um, more strategic universalist demand-based politics um, that have uh, cropped up since the Bernie Sanders campaign um, any longer than anyone else uh, that's new to the left in this period has. Um, we're all sort of figuring this out together, and yet you have these voices um, speaking with authority because they were there from the beginning, from Occupy. Um, and I think we also want to point out that 
there are material incentives um, that exist for those who came out of Occupy to perpetuate this sort of Occupy origin story myth, um, that many of them made careers in the in left media out of this experience. Um, so it's it's sort of a legitimation narrative that continues to allow certain people to take up disproportionate amount of space in and among left discussions today. So it seems like one sort of central uh, central point of that tension is specifically the myth that Occupy led to Bernie Sanders, that you can draw a direct line from the people who were at Occupy, the movement itself, to the Bernie Sanders, the, the two Bernie Sanders campaigns. You guys actually argue that it the, the relationship kind of goes the other way. Uh, ben, can you explain how that works? Because I, you know, I think that if you were to just kind of take a cursory look at like the language of Occupy Wall Street, you know, the 1% versus the 99%. And also a lot of prominent Occupy Wall Street people actually went on to literally become part of the Bernie Sanders campaign. Um, but why did Occupy not actually generate the two Bernie Sanders campaigns? Great. So in, in the article, we sort of distinguish between sort of uh, these two things. On the one hand, the rhetoric and the ideology behind the two. And on the other hand, the people. And as you mm-hmm. say, there's a lot of like commonality there. But just starting with the rhetoric, um, it's true uh, that Bernie Sanders, I mean, there are those, you know, well-known YouTube videos online of Bernie going back 30 years, and he sort of says the same things over and over. Um, but he does, and his campaigns did adopt the sort of 1% versus the 99% language, which did come out of Occupy. And um, in both camps, there's this, um, well, there's a kind of anti-capitalism. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that as far as the sort of rhetoric goes, that's sort of where the commonalities end just on the face of it, right? If you look at like what Occupy was about and we quote um, an article from John Hammond where he he identifies five sort of key traits of Occupy activism. And he says that there are five things that characterize Occupy. It's um, horizontalism, so no formal leadership, uh, prefiguration, like attempting to model the future desired society, uh, autonomy from the state, mutual aid and defiance of government authority. And all five of those things, if you think about like what the Bernie Sanders campaigns were about, it's just there's a clear disconnect there. Right. I mean, there was vying for state power. It was organized around a clear leader. There were concrete demands, Medicare yeah. for all, a Green New Deal, et cetera. And in all those ways, they're just clearly different. Right. And I think this is maybe where the limits of the word anti-capitalism come in and why we ought to defend uh, democratic socialism as something concrete and different from just anti-capitalism in a very vague sense. And if you just say anti-capitalist, sure, like Occupy and Bernie both fit within that within that phrase. Um, But there's a clear difference between Occupy anarchism and and democratic socialism. So that's the that's like just on the face of it. I think that the Occupy origin story has to make sense of that of that break. Um, And we want to argue that there's a clear, clear difference there. Um, And then the second aspect, the people. So um, there were a lot of people who were involved with Occupy who eventually became involved with the Bernie Sanders campaigns. Um, But in the article, we look back at sort of around 2014, 2015 to see what what was going on around then. And I think in the Occupy origin story, there's this idea that the insufficiency of Occupy itself led people on their own accord to mature in their political orientation. And that's what led them to the Bernie Sanders campaigns. And what we argue is that if you look at the time, like before Bernie's first um, primary run, there wasn't really much progression in 
in the so-called movement, right? Um, there was a lot of stagnation. They kept going back to Zuccotti. A lot of the news stories focused on high-profile arrests. Um, Micah White, who's now sort of called out as a kind of Occupy grifter, uh, was was one of the most prominent faces of the movement, right? And then Bernie comes along and all that changes. And our basic argument is just that, you know, the Bernie primaries were the best things happening in the activist world. So, of course, a lot of people were absorbed into those campaigns, but they were absorbed by the by the new emphasis, by the majoritarian orientation. And they they, they shifted in their political orientation from kind of liberal anarchists into liberal socialists. And that was great. I think that um, all of us matured in our political orientation through the Bernie campaigns. But to say that they shifted beforehand and led the charge, I think, is just an inaccurate rendering of the story. And another piece of that is um, is that you guys argue that the Bernie the Bernie campaigns, because they were so successful, kind of had the effect of sort of retrospectively legitimizing what had happened at Occupy. Christy, can you speak a little bit about that? Sure. Um, I think this was one of the things that was so striking about some of the articles that came out this year Mm -hmm. for those of us that were there and remember um, Occupy, we remember, I think what a mess this was compared to what we did during the Bernie years. Um, And yet somehow this was supposed to have been the beginning. Um, And in the article, I think we, we look at the relative popularity of Occupy versus Sanders style economic reforms to sort of make this distinction. Um, Occupy didn't make, I think, anti-capitalism popular. Um, It didn't pave the path toward these being something, these like uh, more economic reform, universalist bread and butter demands being something that people wanted to rally behind. It did provide a surprising metric, I think, of how widespread discontent Mm -hmm. uh, had gotten at that point. But the discontent really preceded it um, and was in evidence, in ample evidence in polling beforehand. I think um, we quote Gitlin in saying that um, even before the Zuccotti Park occupation, uh, polls consistently showed supermajority support, I think something like 60% for progressive economic reforms like raising taxes on on the rich. Um, And in the article, we compare this to a poll that was conducted around the time uh, that Zuccotti Park was being dismantled, um, in which uh, support of Occupy Tactics is polling around 20%. Mm -hmm. So if anything, really, Occupy tainted the message um, insofar as it associated economic populism with fringe political groups and activities. So so let me actually expand this into sort of a broader question, because um, you had something you had alluded to in uh, a little bit a little while ago was that, you know, it. The, the point of kind of correcting this Occupy origin myth isn't just that, you know, isn't isn't just doing it for the sake of it, but that it has implications for organizing today. So um, so so let's talk about kind of professional activism, because I think right now in the absence of a critical mass of, you know, actual real institutions on the left, the left is obviously largely volunteer based. Right. So um, actually, I mean, you both are Medicare for all organizers, uh, in addition to having day jobs and families. And it's obviously, obviously, it's questionable how sustainable this can be long term. Now, obviously, the flip side is that, you know, when you start to professionalize left organizing, that kind of also opens the door to uh, what we might call activismists, like people who are activists just for the sake of it, uh, and also careerists. You know, it's, 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 it's kind of a difficult thing. And it, 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 it depends a lot on, you know, it's, 
it's very ambiguous, I think, right? So this is a long-winded way of asking, like, can you guys talk a little bit about both the bad and the good of professional activism and how you think we can navigate this tension? So this is, um, you know, answering this is sort of uh, providing an answer to your last question as well about like the sort of like rejuvenation of Occupy as something that maybe matters more today than it did at the time. Um, And I think, you know, to to your previous question, you know, Bernie did give some, um, did lend some importance to Occupy, like retroactively, right? Occupy became something more important because of the sort of rejuvenation of democratic socialism. I don't think it was necessarily the Bernie campaigns that that were completely responsible for that, though. Mm-hmm. And this gets to your question, which is that um, the remarkable thing about Occupy Wall Street, and Christy referred to this earlier, is that so many of the prominent people involved in it professionalized their activism. Right. Right. A lot of those people uh, got uh, jobs at left publications. They got jobs in the sort of like left uh, nonprofit world. They started their own nonprofits. They started their own, or, own organizations. Um, and, you know, if you just go down the list of sort of the prominent people and uh, Todd Gitlin has a book about Occupy, uh, mm-hmm. Michael Levitin recently published a book about Occupy. Um, all the people mentioned in there are either, you know, fairly prominent sort of left media figures or um, are, are, you know, in lead positions at different nonprofits or political organizations. Um, And it's a remarkable feat, really. I mean, it's a kind of accomplishment of occupiers to have professionalized their, their activism. Um, The difficult thing, as we sort of point out in the article, is that that professional orientation did great against Bernie's universalism and social democratic demands at the time. Um, And it's what's responsible for sort of like keeping Occupy in memory and for like, you know, why there were so many glowing retrospectives uh, in the 10th year anniversary. Um, But again, it was sort of problematic. I think at the time, anyone who, who sort of lived through the two Bernie campaigns knows that there was a lot of contention on the left and yes, that there were some social media squabbles and just sort of general political immaturity, but there were some clear ideological divides too. And I think that just sort of covering over that um, doesn't help make sense of what actually happened during that time. In terms of your other question about just like pro- professionals, I mean, I think that as you alluded to, like any any movement, if it's going to sustain itself, needs to professionalize. It needs, or it needs mm-hmm. to at least have people who are doing things full time for money. Right. Right. Um, And there are better and worse ways of doing that. There are um, a lot of sort of like worker center kind of organizations that end up just sort of being glorified nonprofits and their advocacy for for um, sort of the most vulnerable workers in our society. Um, And then there are organizations uh, that sort of look very similar, but actually do sort of form themselves into actual worker organizations like I'm just because I'm doing some research about this right now. I mean, if you look at the difference between something like the National Domestic Workers Alliance, uh, which is, it doesn't really have much of a dues paying membership that they're trying to work in that direction. And it's mainly just a sort of advocacy organization for domestic workers. Mm -hmm. You compare that to something like the New York Taxi Workers Alliance, that's, you know, mainly funded by dues at this point. Um, and it's led by some uh, some sort of professionalized leaders like Barabi Desai, but uh, they they keep the interests of workers in mind and they try to act as much like a union as possible. So there's better and worse ways of sort of professionalizing one's activism, obviously. Um, so I don't want to pretend to have a strong answer to this question. 
it's genuinely difficult. I think as, as Jen said, um, Mm -hmm. I think we don't have in recent memory, real models for how you run an all volunteer dues based operation. I mean, you have union organizers who, who have this experience to some extent, but, um, Mm -hmm. uh, that's really where we need to get. And what the Sanders campaign, I think laid the foundation for, um, we need, some operation that provides an opportunity for people to plug in for the maybe two hours a week that they have uh, potentially to give after work uh, and family and other obligations. Um, And I just don't see that as something that professional organizers are necessarily incentivized to create um, Mm -hmm. in part because the nonprofit model has carried on just fine for years, um, mobilizing just a small handful of sort of represented representative, marginalized population, whatever, whoever they're fighting for, um, they can, they can get, you know, the handful of faces they need. um, And people Mm -hmm. uh, for interviews or lobby days or what have you, um, and they can be just fine uh, mobilizing that kind of small number they don't rely on um, massive marches or coordinated actions um, or things of that sort to keep their organizations going. I, I would be remiss to like miss the opportunity to uh, to mention that this touches on everyone's favorite debate, which is about the professional managerial class. <laughs> and I think that one thing that people often get wrong in that is, you know, as much as as much fun as it is to make fun of sort of PMC culture and whatnot, the point is not to dismiss the entire class, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yep. In any sort of solid like left movement, there need to be people who have professionalized their activism in some way, right? But there are better and worse ways to do that, and. The issue with the PMC is that there are structural tendencies baked into their class position that lead in bad directions. And that's Mm -hmm. the point, right? Mm -hmm. Not that they Mm -hmm. can't do good things, not that professionalized activists like staff organizers at unions, for instance, but not that they can't do good things, just that there are certain incentives baked into that particular position within society that oftentimes lead in the wrong direction. Right. Uh, So, so I, now that we've covered kind of some of the lingering bad habits of Occupy, I, I really want to ask you, because you were also both heavily involved in the Bernie Sanders campaigns um, as canvassers and, you know, you know, phone bankers and volunteers. Do you think that the organizing around the Bernie campaigns uh, had a positive effect or changed or reoriented the American left in any way? Um, uh, yes. Yes. Uh, it's hard to know where to sort of begin to speak. And I think um, uh, I would, I would say it's first of all, ideologically it introduced um, universalist sort of bread and butter demands like Medicare for all Mm -hmm. um, as being a thing that people can ask for uh, and organize around. Um, And to some extent, it really created some infrastructure for that organizing, some of which has stuck around um, and some of which has sort of faded away. Mm -hmm. But I think the thing that I would focus on in thinking about um, what it did um, or have been thinking about is just the number of people who now have basic organizing experience and skills. Um, And that's just that's just massive and sort of hard to calculate what impact it will have um, on future fights down the road. I think mm. something like probably something like 95% of the people who I know today um, who can host a 
phone bank or organize a canvas, um, probably got those skills through uh, one of the Bernie campaigns. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that that prepares us, it situates us well for future fights that we have just massive numbers of people who can do that now who who couldn't do that before before the campaigns. Um, This is just sort of the tip of the iceberg, I think, um, Mm -hmm. in terms of what, what the Bernie campaigns did for the American left. But I'm wondering what Ben has to say. I mean, I think about the Bernie campaigns as offering us an, a, a very clear example of what can work uh, when you prioritize working class demands. Um, you know, the, there are, I think that there, in retrospect, were a lot of faults as well. I think that, mm. you know, like, sometimes we can, we can be, you know, in a little bit too defensive about the Bernie campaigns as well. Sure. I certainly find, find myself doing this all the time. <laughs> Uh, arguing that it was, I think it was, uh, you know, the most important sort of political moment to happen in my lifetime, Mm -hmm. really. It was an opening. It was a majoritarian Mm -hmm. opening. Um, It's closed very quickly uh, for a lot of different reasons. And I think that in retrospect, one thing that was weak about the campaigns that um, we should definitely learn from uh, is that there wasn't really any sort of like attempt to create independent organization out of it. There was an attempt in 2016 with our revolution to take mm-hmm. the sort of Bernie list and turn that into its own organization. I think to some extent DSA stole our revolution's thunder. Um, but in 2020, there hasn't been any uh, attempt to do that, right? There's all these like lists and Bernie organizers and infrastructure that's just sort of sitting there and it was abandoned. And maybe there was good reason for that. COVID certainly didn't help, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, politics where you can't be next to other people in person is just sort of not possible. Um, so hope, hopefully as, you know, COVID restrictions die down and people start getting together again, like there can begin to, we can begin to sort of resume something like that. Um, but I think those were sort of concrete failures of, of the campaigns not to have led to some kind of organization or infrastructure that took all of the Bernie work and translated it to something besides just Democratic Party stuff, um, because we're really feeling the pain of not having tra- having made that transition. Yeah, I, I think you guys are both already sort of hinting at this, but I, I suppose just to wrap everything up, um, let's talk about kind of the terrain of the American left now in the post-Bernie era. Um, this is obviously the ongoing question. Um, I have to shout out the recent Jacobin issue, which is called The Left, left in Purgatory. Purgatory. So clearly, you know, lots of people are thinking about this right now. Uh, just, you know, based on everything that we've discussed so far, what are the main roadblocks that you guys think we're running into in kind of the post-Bernie era, which, as I said, you've already sort of begun to touch on. And then just to kind of end on maybe like a forward looking note, um, what kinds of political strategies do you see uh, as do do you think might be the most successful way to get around those roadblocks? Um, One of the first things that comes to my mind uh, when I think about uh, roadblocks is just how in this period of um, sort of defeat or purgatory of the left, our old infighting has returned in a way that has been pretty disappointing to me um, to see lines drawn in the sand um, within left ranks around things that um, I don't think actually divide us or should mm-hmm. certainly shouldn't divide us when it comes to organizing around the big picture. Um, and that's, I think, something that, that we have to work through um, and we have the, I think the best way to do it is, is to, to 
to be fighting for some something in common, um, campaigns tend to, uh, I think when people are doing real work together, it tends to make those kind of smaller, pettier conflicts fade into the background. Mm. Um, I also think, you know, obviously it's just it now compared to the Sanders era, um, it feels hard to know what there is to fight for today. A lot of the mm-hmm. old fights um, have had the steam taken out of them. Medicare for all, for example, feels obviously much less viable right. today than it did when we had a real prospect of a Sanders presidency. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there are still things to fight for and we need to be organizing campaigns around those things. Mm-hmm. Um uh, it's just harder to do than it was three years ago. Um, for example, I think down ballot elections are, are important and possible, um, and especially intermediate legislative fights. And I think we need to be thinking really intelligently about um, what kind of fights are um, paving a path for our bigger um, down the road demands. Uh, I think some of the criteria that I think about when I'm thinking about what what are worthwhile um, uh, like legislation to fight for. I'm thinking about um, things that are tied rhetorically and logistically to the big demands, um, things that cut away the concentration and power of capital in strategic industries, um, things that create model institutions or processes that we can or would continue to expand. Um, And also probably most importantly to me is strengthening our ability to organize by creating and expanding constituencies by winning things. Um, So I think there are things that we have to win and that we should be winning them um, insofar as we're able to and in winning them, showing people that politics, uh, that real change that could be felt at the daily level is possible and that people can engage in left politics to make those things happen. Yeah, I mean, as far as hindrances to the actually existing left, um, the fact that a lot of normal people uh, have primarily negative thoughts when they hear the word socialist is obviously mm. not a good sign. Um, and I hate to say it, but I think it's 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 true. Like outside of the circle of friends that I have that are leftists or socialists, um, a lot of people associate it with... Um, a kind of shrill online culture and uh, getting away from that, <laughs> I think is important. <laughs> uh, and I think part of that is not just being uh, class focused, but sort of class based as well. Um, I, I don't know that I see that transition coming anytime soon. I think partly for reasons that we identify in the article, which is that um, a lot of the sort of occupy kind of uh, activists have really embedded themselves in the left media worlds and left nonprofit worlds. And, um, you know, activistism, as it was sort of defined, uh, you know, in uh, the Doug Henwood, Liza Featherstone, and Christian Parenti article from uh, the 90s, I want to say. It was mm-hmm. early I think 2000s, so, maybe. yeah, or early, early um, 2000s, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they they sort of see it as just sort of like spinning your wheels, right? Like right. not like no sort of strategic vision, just doing things to do things. And, uh, you know, I mean, part of that comes from frustration, but part of it comes from this sort of activist culture that's been professionalized, right? Mm-hmm. Like when when people, when it's their jobs to be doing things that are that have to do with politics, I mean, that's the reason why I get, you know, 20 emails a day telling me I got to do something right now or mm-hmm. like the world's going to end. 
Um, and so, you know, it's really hard to, to break out of that when you've got, you know, small groups of volunteers trying to do something different and this sort of well-funded activist set that's been professionalized on the other hand, uh, just sort of stoking this constant sort of uh, energy. It's a difficult, it's a difficult thing to get out of. Um, you know, I, I talked to someone the other day who, uh, who said that like everything that we're doing now is not that important, but what we're hoping for is that we're at least like clearing the path for um, a sort of upsurge in labor activism. Mm -hmm. uh, so if, so this, like, if this is the 2020s, like, like the 1920s sort of trying to like clear the brush so that like something can happen in the thirties, that's, that seems like an optimistic view to me. Um, mm -hmm. But I think that's the sort of like, you know, one of the best things that we could hope for, uh, yeah. albeit like not like, of course, the social conditions that led to that upsurge. Well, uh, I mean, I wanted to just kind of really ask the last question and you sort of answered it a little bit. But are, do you guys see any bright spots? Um, because obviously you're both partisans of Medicare for all, as am I. Uh, what should those of us who want to sort of break out of this kind of stasis keep our eye on? You know, I think... Um, no one really anticipated 2015, 2016 Bernie. Um, and if I'm going to be really optimistic, I, I'm going to say like something like that uh, is going to come around again. Um, and it's just a matter of, in the meantime, clearing the brush, as Ben's friend says. Um, that's what we have to be doing to continue, continue to develop organizers, um, to increase our ranks, yeah. and to build connected tissues between existing left institutions um, that are going to be useful the next time something like this comes around. Um, I think we're doing that here in New York City, um, and I'm encouraged to, to think that, though I don't know about or see it myself necessarily, there are likely similar initiatives spread out across the country um, and happening that are, that are doing Exactly that, preparing the groundwork uh, for the next time there's a, a major mass opportunity for us to organize. That's my, that's my optimistic take. It's a difficult time. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think that um, I think that right now we're at a kind of like nadir of, of interest and energy uh, because most like anyone on the sort of like liberal left who thought there was like an opening with Biden to like sort of like infiltrate like the halls of power and like do something regardless of the fact that he's Joe Biden um, is now realizing that there's just there's a block there. Right. That there's only so much we can do. That being said, I don't doubt that once like, you know, people start stoking, um, you know, enthusiasm for. 2024, right? And like, you know, once again, trying to defeat fascism, that a lot of that energy is going to be devoted to that. Mm -hmm. And I think that sort of breaking out of that cycle is the key thing. How we do that precisely is, is a difficult question. Um, I, I think that, you know, as far as the bright spots go, the sort of like union reform campaigns, mm -hmm. I, I would say are the sort of like brightest effect that there's new leadership at the Teamsters um, is, is very promising and that there are sort of like union reform fights happening around the country. Um, if there can be some kind of pull outside of the Democratic Party, I mean, that that seems like the, the brightest thing we have to hold on to at the moment. All right. Well, again, Ben and Christie's article in The New Catalyst is Occupy in Retrospect. We are linking that down below. Definitely read that and check it out. Uh, guys, thank you so much for your time. It was really good to see you. Thanks for having us, Jim. You too. Thanks, Jen.